Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. In 2019, Time magazine named Monique Fiso's Wellington restaurant Hiakai as one of the 100 greatest places in the world. A far cry from an after-school job in Porirua as a sandwich hand. Fiso's incomparable talent has led to work in Michelin-style restaurants, featuring on Netflix's The Final Table, and receiving praise from publications including The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, National Geographic and Forbes. A visionary modern-day food warrior, taking Māori cuisine to the world, Fiso has now produced the stunning Ockham New Zealand Book Awards winner, Hiakai. This story of Kai Māori charts her personal journey, ranging across history, tradition and tikanga, and serves up foraging and usage notes, an illustrated ingredient directory, and over 30 recipes. In a session to savour, she speaks with Kim Knight, supported by Platinum patrons Pip Muir and Kit Too Good. We hope you enjoy it. In our mana, in our reo, in our iwi. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko ke mai tōku ingoa, tēnā katoa. Welcome to this Sunday afternoon session of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Hiakai with Monique Fiso. Um, some housekeeping, even for you frequent festival flyers, mute your phones, um, and if you haven't already scanned, then you can sign into the COVID Tracer app manually. Feel free to wear a mask if that's your preference, and don't hesitate to leave the room if you feel unwell at any point. The festival encourages you to share your experience on social media, uh, hashtag AWF21, but do that with consideration to your fellow audience members. This session is possible thanks to Platinum patrons Pip Muir and Kit Toogood, and we'd like to wholeheartedly thank them for their support, and you for choosing to come along to this session in an incredible programme. So my name is Kim, I'm a journalist with the New Zealand Herald, and I'm also the restaurant critic with its Canvas magazine. Over the next hour, I'll be in conversation with Monique Fiso, Nauraru, Ngāti Ruanui, and Samoan. We'll be talking about food and books, so basically life. Um, we'll talk about how Monique got to here, her incredible restaurant in Wellington, Hiakai, um, where ingredients like titi, red marapo, and mamakawa are commonplace. Um, and of course, the book of the same, same name. A huge congratulations to Monique, who uh, on Wednesday night, took out the Judith Bunny Illustrated Non-Fiction Award at the Ockham's. Well Thank done. you. Um, just want to quickly note, there won't be an audience component to this session, but Monique's available afterwards at the author signing table. So, Monique Fiso, world famous and not just in New Zealand. Has anyone eaten it here, Kai? Yes, we are. Awesome. The lucky ones. <laughs> two seconds more preamble. In 2019, Time magazine named Hiakai one of the 100 greatest places in the world. Chef Monique Fiso has worked in Michelin star restaurants, featured on Netflix's The Final Table, and here at home I think you might have shocked the heck out of Gordon Ramsay when you asked him to cook a goat in a hole <laughs> in the ground. <laughs> I first met Monique on a video screen. I was studying for a Master's in Gastronomy at AUT and my lecturer was Tracy Burno, one of the uh, people who worked on this book with you. Tracy told us to prepare for something quite special and she was right because you filled that video screen and blew our minds. We'd spent, I don't know, weeks pontificating on the meaning of an Aotearoa cuisine and you were actually the living embodiment of it. <laughs> Monique Fiso has been called a modern-day food warrior. She's taken Kai Māori to the world, and perhaps even more importantly, she's changed New, Zealand's, New Zealanders' attitudes and thoughts about the cuisine of Aotearoa. So thank you, Monique, for being here, and especially thank you for being here on the one day off you get this week. <laughs> <laughs> what 
What are the Sunday food rituals that you're missing out on by being here with us? Sunday rituals I'm missing out on? Um, not much. Usually I'm passed out. <laughs> um, might try sneaking a visit to the family or just go for a, um, I don't know, I've been getting, I don't know if anyone else is into the flamenco scooters, but the old school ones go way faster than the new ones and you'll find me on Wellington waterfront like going for a home. So that's usually my Sunday. <laughs> it's a bit childish. <laughs> um, there's a great quote in here, Kai, that, that says, eating is an affirmation of our relationship with the land and ancestors. And I guess that's a little bit about what this session is about, is how food connects people. And so I, I kind of wanted to start with your the very little Monique Fiso. What sort of food did you grow up with? Um, I grew up eating a lot of um, taro, chop suey. Um, my parents worked really, really long hours. I mean, there's five of us in the family, and you know, mum and dad were the classic um, young parents that were studying as well as working um, multiple jobs and raising kids, so they didn't have a lot of time to do home-cooked meals. Um, but both my grandmas would come and stay with us and babysit. Um, and they did a lot of the home cooking that we would get. And so, and particularly my Samoan grandma, so I had a lot of that influence um, with food as a young child. Was, was that when you kind of started to think about a life in food? Or where, where did that come from? Um, definitely, I think, especially with my Samoan grandma, she would always sort of, she'd need a hand with some of the prep, especially for Sunday lunch, and so she kind of was like, your sister's super girly, you're not, you're going to get in the kitchen with me because you won't mind getting a bit dirty. I was like, all right. So um, it started with really just like peeling vegetables for her and doing some like very early knife work. I call it knife work, but it was just like a little kid peeling some <laughs> garlic cloves. And then that's when I started to get fascinated with things because I was like, why are my eyes burning when I'm doing this? Why, how does this item here end up tasting like that? So I was, I guess that's when I was really starting to watch how somebody moves in a kitchen and works with ingredients in a really, really loose term. And then I guess from that I started getting books out of the library, like, you know, kids' cookbooks, with, you know, whether it was to do with birthday cakes or um, I had like a kids' microwave cookery book that I burnt through. Like, just, I was just quite like, like obsessed with it and I think my dad saw that I had, was developing this hobby, so he would let me go grocery shopping with them and pick one recipe and try to make that recipe. A lot of them were like way like beyond my cooking abilities at the time because I'm talking like an eight-year-old trying to pull off soufflés and semi-fredos <laughs> and they were horrible. I think I tried to make like a kiwi fruit ice cream and I didn't understand that ice cream needs to be churned and I, I just made it and put it as like a block in the freezer and then like it was like here you go guys and everyone was like ooh and dad was like it's good it's good you know like he was trying to be encouraging so like it's probably we kind of owe like a good portion of like me even sitting here to dad being like don't laugh at her guys like she's figuring it out um and then again in like intermediate you know you go to technocraft and you can do sewing woodwork or cooking i remember i went to the sewing class and i broke the machine on the first day and mrs sewing wilson i still remember her name was just like you broke the brand new machine i she was furious, and so she goes, you can just go to the cooking class instead. <laughs> and that ended up actually being great, because instead of having to do a term of sewing and a term of cooking, I got to do two terms of cooking. So by the second term, I wasn't buddied up with a classmate anymore doing, you know, scones and stuff. The teacher was like, she's kind of gone through the whole curriculum, so she started bringing in her own cookbooks and saying, what do you want to make next week? You're like your own little, I had my own little section. And so while everyone else was doing like pitta pockets with salad, I was like doing steam buns and all sorts of really like quite advanced stuff for an 11 year old. And I think that was just kind of, I was like, this is me. Like 
this is this is my happy place and I've found something that I'm good at and um, keeps me engaged and keeps me from being cheeky in class. So That's so funny, the sewing class. I remember you telling me um, when you uh, started weaving the Harakiki yeah. baskets that you were the girl in sewing class who glue gunned a cushion. I did. <laughs> I, I've never made a cushion and my sister's amazing at textiles and so the, it was. it's always been like the weird thing with my older sister and I. Everything she's really good at, I'm horrible at and vice versa. And so they, I guess they assumed that I would be like my older sister Estelle and I'd be able to like just make a gown, you know, <laughs> on the first day. Instead I broke the machine and then the one time they were like, okay, you can have another go at this. I just was... I got fed up and went and got the glue gun and just kind of, and then put the stuffing in and was like, here you go. And she's like, you didn't sew this. I was like, well, it's a cushion. Like, it's held together. Like, I don't, this is, yeah. And I think that's probably the last time you ever took a shortcut, having a <laughs> um, You studied at Welltech and the first, the first restaurant you worked in was, was Martin Bosley's uh, in Wellington. And that was, I mean, that was an innovative, high-end. Martin really reminded was. me that you were so determined to succeed that you, how did you learn to make quenelles? Oh, I, it's funny because now there's a 20-year-old in my kitchen <laughs> who is struggling with making quenelles and it's just so many flashbacks are happening. Um, basically, I started working for him and a lot of his dishes would have I don't know if you know what quenelles are, they're like making an egg shape, like a perfect egg shape with a spoon, like either out of, well, out of many things, but usually out of ice cream or butter or a puree. And I couldn't do one to save myself. And the first sort of day on the job, some of the desserts have like five of them, and they're different sizes on one dish. And the food is taking forever to come off my station, and everyone's getting super frustrated. Um, and I was almost in like tears at the end of every shift. Um, and my day off was coming up, and I was determined not to get yelled at for not being able to quenelle. So I went and got like a, a five liter, you know, the kiwi, ice cream box, you know, they come in like the cardboard box, yes. and I just went back to my flat on my day off, and I just sat there, like, all weekend long, just like, going and going and going, until I got the shape, um, and then I remember going into work, and service was about to start, this was the first service after that weekend, and... I remember they were like, oh, the amuse bouche, which always came off my section, is going to be this quenelle of duck liver parfait. And I was like, all right, all right, cool, yeah, sweet. And then they were kind of all like, rolled their eyes like, oh, you know, old junior over there is going to struggle again. And it's like the first order came in. And I was like, boom. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next one, I was like, just kept going. And Martin just, I remember him turning his head and going, someone's been practicing. And I was like... I will get things, you know. I think that's when he realised I wasn't the sort of person to just kind of give up that easily, and that I would put in the time and the homework and the to get to get to where I wanted to go. And it's funny with this junior that's in my kitchen now. He said to me, "Do you mind if I take you know this particular spoon and this container home so I can practice?" And I was like, "Don't want you working on your days off, but I get it. Like I've been you. Yet go." <laughs> um. I wondered whether it was kind of expected as a chef in New Zealand that you would eventually move overseas. You opted for New York. That was yeah. It was a it was a really different choice because like the even when you go to tech, there's sort of this expectation that you'll go to London. It's just kind of like, of course you're gonna everyone's gonna finish here and they're gonna go to London and that's just what you do. Um, and I I thought that that would be my path as well. And it was only because I happened to have a conversation with Rachel Tuolele, who is now the um, CEO of Connell. Um, and at the time, she was running Yellow Brick Road, which is now run by Martin Bosley. So everything goes in circles. And, um, so we were in the ladies' restroom at the restaurant. Um, and I'd been working for Martin for a few years. I'd graduated. And she goes, oh, what are you going to do now? What's the next step? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Go to London. And she said, oh, well, didn't you graduate less than 12 months ago? And I was like, 
yeah, she goes, you know you can get a visa for the US, but you have to go within 12 months of graduating. You should really go there, you should go to New York, do something different. And she'd also spent a long time living in Los Angeles. And she goes, I think it would be really good for you. You know, like, I really enjoyed it. You should really look into it. And I went and looked into it that night. And I, I was like, how did no one tell anyone that you didn't have to go to London? There's other options. Um, and then I thought, well, New York has the Michelin Guide. Yeah. It's a big city. It's somewhere that, you know, cooking is taken really seriously. Like, I'm going to do this instead. And so my whole plan was I'd go there, I'd do a year there, and then I would go to London afterwards. Um, but I ended up staying way longer. What did you learn about yourself over there? Because those kitchens... They're intense. They're really <laughs> intense. Um, what did I learn about myself? Um, gosh, where do you start? I think I learned that I've definitely got the work ethic required for that level of cooking. Um, I definitely, on reflection, actually coming back from New York, realised that I needed to work on my patience, <laughs> which I've worked quite hard on. Um, I think I just learned a lot about cooking, because you, you're so, yeah, your hands are moving constantly, you're doing 80 hours a week, and everyone around you is also just as good as you, as, especially at that age, and so you have to really push yourself, and it's quite an exciting environment to be in, in some ways, and really challenging, um, and yeah, you just, you just, when you, when you came back, the contrast between what you were doing over there and what you came back to is so enormous. I, you, you worked for a, a lodge in Hamner Springs, um, and I think, I think you told me that you ordered a sous vide machine for their kitchen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> was it a culture shock? <laughs> it, was, it was kind of funny. So I came back and I didn't really have a plan. Um, I was kind of debating whether I was going to come back to New Zealand full-time or if I was going to just take a bit of a breather and then maybe move back to another big city. Um, and I thought, well, in the meantime, I still need to make a living. So I saw this job ad for this lodge down in Hamner Springs just for the summer. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. I can do that for uh, a couple of months while I figure out the next steps. And yeah, when I say lodge in kitchen, it's a really loose term. It's literally like a domestic kitchen um, run by this really lovely older couple um, who have just, they're fly fishing experts. People come all across the world just to hang with, particularly John, who knows all these secret spots around the place. Um, so basically, you in the, at the lodge, you work by yourself um, all day long, like honestly, probably the kitchen in my apartment is better equipped than what I walked into. And you cook for 12 people um, during their stay and you've just got groups coming through all the time. And so, yeah, when I applied for the role, the Robin, um, the wife who runs the lodge, she called and she was like, um, like, is this a real resume? And I was like, yeah, it's real. And she's like, why are you applying for our lodge? I was like, because it sounds like a really great opportunity. It sounds like perfect for me. Like, this is what I, I think this is what I need. And she was like, oh, okay. Because um, we usually just like, people just usually order like instant mash and like, just like add water and like maybe a lamb shank. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I can do that too. If that's all. And it was kind of funny. Um, so then I, I flew down to Christchurch, met them, and then I was like, I started a week later, and I show up, and I've got um, like a sous vide machine, to, you know, I've got all of this, like all these gadgets, and she's just kind of looking at it like, what, what, what is this chick gonna do? And a lot of their guests, they come every year, and so um, yeah, it was quite funny for them because they, I, you know, the previous years they'd gotten like home-cooked burgers and 
all sorts of stuff, like, you know, like a lasagna bake. <laughs> and then I'm locking up and I'm like, I've made a five-course meal. And of course, I've got all the time in the world for the first time in my life. I've made these five-course meals and I'm like, have like this full section set up and I'm like doing these drags and drops and all sorts of things. And they're like, the cooking's really gone up a level this <laughs> year. It was the first time yeah. the mashed potatoes had been canaled. Oh my gosh, I know. I was so good at this stuff. And yeah, it was, but it was really it was really awesome. It was so freeing because it was the first time in my life that I'd got to just cook with nobody else telling me what to do or having to, you know, kind of get sign off on anything. Um, and I'd had a lot of ideas that I wanted to try out. And I think it's really, you get to a point as a chef where you kind of need to figure out what your style is outside of the people you previously worked for. And I do think, like, what was interesting is if I look at just that three-month period at the lodge, the first, probably, month, a lot of the dishes were very similar to stuff I had been doing in my previous roles, and then they started to really, like, take shape as, yeah, stuff that was moving away from it. Because it it feels like um, that was kind of a, a... switch flipping that's like when you were like yeah smoke and fire and yeah. this makes sense now yeah it was just having that time to think and just kind of have a blank canvas you didn't though go straight into restaurants and um we're going to move on to talking about the book shortly but I wanted I wanted to talk to Monique a little bit about the pop-ups which some of you may have been to but um I mean why <laughs> you're intense, you're up a river, you've got no cell phone reception. I know, the first few pop-ups, I would do them in um, restaurants on the days they were closed, and they were, they were great, and they were awesome, and it was a good opportunity to sort of test the waters, and then I kind of was like, oh, how can I connect the outdoors with cooking and other things that I was exploring and different ideas I was throwing about, um, and then I ended up doing pop-ups up the Whanganui River um, in the middle of nowhere, and those were so, yeah, I, I, I may have put my, the level of work I was doing in New York to shame with that, how <laughs> physical it was, and now I think about it, I was like, what was I thinking, like, how did I even do that, like, I am, um, basically, the long and short of it is when we are doing the pop-ups up the river, um, I would um, start my prep um, in a small marae kitchen um, just outside of um, Wanganui, and then I would pack up the truck and would have to have everything like heavily iced down because it's got to last while it's up there. Then you drive up um, River Road, which is scary. I don't know if anyone's done it. It's pretty petrifying and then pull up to a landing, um, load everything onto a jet boat, and then go up the river, and then there's another really obscure landing, and then you get off the jet boat there, and then Jay, who has this crazy campsite that he has built over several years because he's likes to live off the grid, um, and he's got all kinds of strange stories for how he ended up there. He would meet me there with a quad bike, and then would load everything onto the quad bike, go up this muddy track, and then unload everything, and you've got no reception. <laughs> so everyone who's purchased a ticket, you kind of hope that like it's all good and they have no questions, because they can't contact you. Um, aside from Jay would turn on his power generator on Friday night for about half an hour, and that would turn on the satellite, which would give you about half an hour of dial-up speed internet to deal with anybody who has, a, has sent an email. And then you're just like, well, and then there was a tour guide who would meet them, you know, and uh, a lot of people come from Auckland, Wellington, um, and they would, yeah, basically meet just outside Alcuni and then meet me there. It was so bizarre. I don't know how I pulled it off. I think back, I'm like, that's pretty crazy what we did and we did it all summer long and it was so physical and there was times where 
Like, the river has its own rules and laws, okay? This is something I learned about there. Like, the locals, you go by their laws. And um, it was kind of loose. It was like catching a bus to get back to the truck as well. So some Sundays, they would show up on time, and they'd pick me up on the side of the river and take me back to the truck. And other times, I might be sitting there for like two or three hours in the hot sun with no shade, and I'd get so hot like, and I'd hear a jet boat and be like, this must be them coming to get me. And then it might not be. And then I would just like sit in the river, like up to here in the water to cool down and just be like, oh man, it's getting really hot. <laughs> when am I going to go home? <laughs> um, in those pop-ups, you, you really uh, began to, to use hangi, like in a, yeah. I guess in a, like a fine dining sense. Um, and I wondered whether the use of foraged ingredients of, of Natipu came hand in hand with that. Was that just a logical progression that you would not cook from the supermarket? <laughs> Basically, how that kind of ended up coming into being was if I was meeting Joe McLeod and him basically showing me well, one, starting to go more in depth of how to use a lot of these plants, um, but he has his style of doing hangi, which involved using a lot of these plants to do layering. Right. Um, and from there, it just kind of progressed. So it was, I was learning about both at the same time, and it kind of made sense to kind of go, this will be the next step of and, the pop-ups. And did working with Joe also mean that you were getting the lessons in tikanga at the same time? The oh, absolutely. Yes. It's kind of interesting to think about how green I was back then. And that's where he, it became really, he was so important in that part of the journey because it's somebody who like lives and breathes. I don't know if you've seen um, The Life of Kai. He's got an episode um, about all the research he's been doing and, and his life in um, food. But he, in that episode, you might see like there's an office and he's it's just surrounded with books and notes that he's taken. And this is like 40 years of him being heavily just engrossed in Kai Māori and having someone like that who's that passionate and knowledgeable take you by the hand and pass lessons on. Because that's a pretty special thing. Um, and, yeah, those, those pop-ups and parts of the book and the, yeah, the discovery of... Well, not the discovery, I didn't discover it. Um, you know, they've always been there. But the, um, the un getting to the understanding of these plants, you know, a lot... Joe definitely deserves a lot of credit with passing that knowledge on to me. Because were you, were you scared of, of getting it wrong? Of, oh um, yeah, yeah. Because it's the thing you can't, um, and it's we're all on a learning journey. And at Hikai, we always say we we don't know it all. We're not going to pretend to be the absolute experts on things, but it's important to always do the research to be as accurate and respectful as possible. Um, and I think with Joe. He's a great resource, and we've got other really, really great resources and friends of the restaurant who it's great to have those people to kind of, as we're coming up with different ideas for the menu, or even if it's, it can be something like floral decorations that we're not sure about, like, right. you know, you, like, is it okay to use these plants here and there? Like, what is the meaning? Like, we're really lucky to have, you know, a wide variety of people that we can go to to make sure that we're doing things correctly because you can't just be one foot and one foot out like doing things to suit yourself you know you've got to stay true to what you're trying to trying to do yeah i remember you talking to our class about things like um gathering harakiki um and flax and and like there's just some really basic rules that I, we would never have. Yeah, and, and we still have to have those conversations with staff all the time, especially when they're new. And, you know, they're, you know, they're like, oh, I'm going to go out for a forage. And we're like, no, you're not. And they're like, yes, I am. And like, no, you're not. It's raining. And, you know, and it's just the simple things of like, well, it's, you can't. It's raining. It's unless 
you you're attending a tangi, there's you have no you can't go out. It's a custom. So like you know we we have to strike this balance at Hikai of being an incredibly busy restaurant and producing things that involve these plants, but also doing them in a way that is in line with kai Māori and tikanga and, you know, not just kind of picking and choosing when it suits us. Yeah. And, and we're really firm on that. And I think that kind of shocks people when we're like, well, you should have planned ahead if you needed that kawakawa because it's now raining for three days. And then I'm like, oh, surely, you know. And it's like, no, sorry. And don't even show up to work with it. Like, we get quite quite strict about it, like, don't even, no, we won't even, it's, yeah, it's kind of an, I think it's kind of an um, interesting way to work for particularly, well, how many people have worked at a restaurant that's this deep um, mm. into doing things this way, so I think it's quite a lot for chefs to wrap their heads around. And, I mean, that's a good question, I doubt anyone potentially has, has worked in a restaurant like Hiakai before. You know what's cool is that Years ago, people came in a lot greener mm -hmm. and were kind of like, I don't know anything, I've, you know, you have to teach me everything that, you know, about these plants. And what's great is, thanks to social media and now especially thanks to the book, we're getting people coming in and like, I've read the book, I've done a bit of background research and you're not having to explain so much from oh, ground level. And I hope that continues because that will, It'd be interesting to see where restaurants go from here um, if that's people wanting to choose that route, if they're wanting to create, you know, a New Zealand restaurant, like what the influence of all that knowledge might have on our industry. Absolutely. I, I think um, the perception perhaps is that, is that Kai Māori was undervalued. Well, I mean, more than undervalued, it was, it was shunned, it was kind of denigrated by European colonisers. Um, and now, suddenly, uh, a whole lot of people who look like me are, are finding food identity in kawakawa tea. Is, is that a bit rich of us, or...? Um, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. I can move um. on. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, I guess I, I think back to like what we always say at Hikai is we're all on a learning journey. And it's, I think it's great that people are interested and they're wanting to learn more. I think, and I don't want to sound preachy, I think it's just so long as that we're all doing it in a way that we're respectful um, and we're understanding like different customs involved. Yeah, so I think, because it's interesting you say that, because we've actually been criticised in the restaurant before for having staff who aren't Kiwi. Like, most of our staff are, but occasionally we're like, oh, well, we got served by an American. And we're like, but that American has taken the time to, like, go through all the training that we give them and, like, do their own research and understand it. And it's like, so are you telling me that this person isn't allowed to work here because even though they actually care a lot and have put the time in, I, I don't know, I think I like digressing, but you know, it's a sort of same thing with, with you, like no, is I it rich of us to be drinking cover cover tea and be interested? It's like, no, I, I don't think so. I think everyone's allowed to learn about. Plus also it's delicious. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> it's, yeah. I meant to um, say at the start, and I'm sure you, guys all know this, but hiakai means um, hungry or, or, or craving. Um, I did ask Monique if she wanted to do a reading from the book and she said no, and I think it's probably because we're supposed to lick the pages. Yeah, um, <laughs> they're so delicious. <laughs> it took two years to make the book. Um, I want to read you a quote from your Instagram account. I don't think anything has pushed me to the brink of madness more than writing this book. Why did you do it? Why did I do it? Um, I mainly did it because I wanted a book like that. And when I decided to embark 
on the Hikai journey and start doing pop-ups. Um, I was like, oh, you know, surely there's like at least five books I can go get off the shelf and I'll be away, you know, like off we go. Um, and I couldn't really find anything um, that went in depth on Kai Māori. There was like some books that kind of touched on it. There might be like a chapter or two and others that kind of like, it was just recipes but not a lot, there was no, you know, glossary of different ingredients and I thought, oh, I really wish that there was a book that went across all these subjects so that there was a kind of a starting point um, or something to just to reference and so I thought, you know, oh well, this book doesn't exist so I just have to figure out another way to do my research. And then um, when I started the conversation with um, Penguin Random House, you know, it was like, oh, okay, so a book, you know, like, what are, you, what are your ideas and thoughts? And it was kind of like a book going through the history and methods and with, you know, a glossary with the ingredients and some, and some recipes at the end would, it's, it kind of was like, we need to make the book that's missing, you know? Yes, so that was kind yes. of how it all started. And we thought, oh, you know, it's kind of funny to think of what the deadline was. Now it was like <laughs> it was like six months, and that was in 2017. So you know, we're sitting on the stage now. It took a while, but yeah, um, I, I'm gonna say during the whole process, um, you know, like cooking is hard and it takes a lot of out of you, but writing is a whole other discipline that I needed. Like, I am used to running around all day long and then having to sit and um, work through it was an interesting discipline. I, I, I'm just, yeah, I have so much respect after that, like, for what you do, to uh, have to actually sit there mutual. and kind of, like, make it happen. It's hard. It's really hard. I'd give me the, a sack of onions any day, you know. I'll get through that. <laughs> Like, I can get through that real quick. <laughs> but two paragraphs might take me two weeks. <laughs> One of the really interesting things about the book is, is the way it is completely centred with a Māori worldview. Um, and, and, I mean, that's not just lip service. You, you start with creation beliefs. There's karakia, there's the lunar calendar. There, there isn't any cookbook like this in New Zealand and the world. And I don't even know if that's correct to call it a cookbook. I guess it's a food yeah. book. What, did you push for that approach? Where, yeah, yeah, definitely. And actually, I didn't really have to push that hard. Mm -hmm. um, like Penguin were really, really understanding. And um, they... And that's one thing I feel like really grateful for as a, a first-time author, that I was given a lot of freedom to form the book in the way that you know, we, we envisaged. Um, and it was interesting, so, yeah, it kind of started with jotting down how we thought the flow of it might go, and um, one of the co-authors, Tracy Berno, who um, obviously you know quite well, her and I went back and forth for months about um, how to start the book off, because in initially we were kind of going to just go into methods um, and go into, you know, hunting, um, fishing, and just go straight into that. And then we thought, we can't really just go into that without giving people context and sort of taking them from start to present yeah. day. So then the idea came to start at the creation story because actually not everyone knows that story. Um, and then hold the reader's hand from creation through to... Um, ingredients and then recipes so that you can kind of go from past to present all in, all in one book. It's a great approach because it really centres the reader um, in kind of what you're, what you're attempting to achieve. And I, I just want to say that while you um, claim to not be a writer, you are a storyteller. And, and that, um, that's evident in your menus because your menus tell stories. I mean, you've worked with um, 
Patricia Grace's book, um, Watercress. And it was really yeah. cool to do that. Yeah, yeah. Why, what, I wondered what comes first for you, the story or the ingredient? Um, the story does. Mm. Um, so basically um, what we'll do, um, my partner Katie and I, Katie's also the general manager, we sort of, we, we'll go back and forth, whether it's when we're making morning coffee or we're at work or you know driving the cow going foraging, about different ideas that we've got for menus and we start with the story. Right. Um, and the Patricia Grace one was an interesting one. We'd kind of just done a whole bunch of really, really serious stories. So we'd done like Coupe's Travels Around Aotearoa, which there were some really dark moments in um, that story, which is really cool to do um, and interpret in food. Um, and uh, we'd just yeah, we just, and we did Matariki, and even though that's not as heavy a story, they'd all just been very, very serious. And we thought, we well, really need to just do something that's just a little bit more relaxed and a bit more playful, and I think it was all for our sake as well. Um, and we also were kind of like, we'd done months of not really doing um, much in the way of some Polynesian cooking, mm -hmm. and, you know, that's... I'm half Samoan, so I, I was kind of craving putting that through the menu as well. Um, and then would, my grandma lives in Cannons Creek, has for a gajillion years. I shouldn't say that. She'll be insulted by that. She's not a gajillion <laughs> years old. But we were driving through, and we were like, it would be really cool to do something that's related to a local story. And then we're like, why don't we do that Patricia Grace, you know, Watercress Junior and the Children of Champion Street. And it was like one of those moments where the stars all aligned. So then that day we go to Paper Plus to go and buy the book. It happens to be out of stock. We're feeling a bit bummed. We <laughs> run into a family friend. We tell, she's like, what are you doing out, out this way, you know? And we're like, oh, we're trying to find Watercress Junior and the Children of Champion Street. And she's like, oh, my Auntie Pat. I was like, what? Auntie Pat? She goes, she's my neighbour. And then, so then she calls Patricia Grace and she's like, do you have any copies at home? And she's like, yeah, yeah, do you want to come around? So then we end up going to Patricia's house and, and we're sitting there and then Patricia, like, she, um, she made us on brand some kawakawa tea uh, and, and she has this ginger loaf and she was shaking she's like I don't know if this is any good I'm very nervous and we're like we're really nervous you're Patricia Grace she's like I'm really nervous giving you food and then we just sat there and um, yeah I, I don't yeah I, I was kind of you know just the, the legend is sitting in front of me and I'm like in her home I'm like so you know Breakdown, Watercrest Junior and the Children from Champion Street for me. She's like, well, it's a children's story. And we're like, yeah, let's go in depth in it. <laughs> so I think she's found both Katie and I a little bit annoying because we were going through each page and we found out so much about, um, about that book and like, the reasons she wrote it. And then we, we broke it down and we said to her, like, we're going to break this down and we're going to turn this into a menu. And that menu actually ran for about three to four months at the restaurant and Patricia came in with her children and ate it and, fun fact, the illustrations, which are by Robin Kahukiwa, and we actually got some of Robin's um, artwork in our restaurant now as a result, they, each illustration is based on actual children that were growing up in Cannons Creek at the time. Wow. And some of the characters, characters slash real children, who are now in their 40s and um, 50s, came in to eat the menu as well. So that was a really fun one because it just brought a whole bunch of people who I think never thought they would need to know each other or work together all together for food. And that's the power of food. That is, connection. Yeah. Yeah. One of those dishes actually represented Patricia Grace, didn't it? Was the it? wahini tour dish. Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, basically... What we wanted to do was create something that was super feminine and intricate, and um, but also delicious. So we created a dish that, and also because there's Polynesian themes through that, and we wanted to link it to my Polynesian heritage, we made this really, really intricate um, coconut semifredo with hibiscus, and there was like a, these tiny little petals um, that were made out of twirls and you'd have to bake like a thousand a week and you'd piece it together. I used to make 
some of the team cry, you know, like just how long it took to plate it. It was, yeah, it was, it was, I think a lot of the staff were quite pleased when they're like, we don't have to make those a thousand leaf <laughs> things anymore. And when people would see it, they'd be like, I don't want to eat it because I can see how long it took. They'd see us with our tweezers wow. building them and they'd eat it in like a minute. And <laughs> it's just the name of the game. <laughs> um, I think in Patricia's session, I, th I think she told people to eat their vegetables this week. So mine was the... Hiakai isn't isn't just recipes, of course, which you've you've talked about. It's it's a it's an ingredient. It's a comprehensive mm. ingredient list. I mean, I I go into the bush and see a, a fuzzy, hairy black tree fern, and you see mamaku, and 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 you make it into a pate de pate de foie. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that was like the, the one the main reasons I wanted to make the book was I, I didn't want to just kind of do a whole bunch of recipes and kind of tell people, well, this is what I've done with it. Um, I wanted to have that glossary section there so that others who are interested can read about the ingredients. And then we put in a few, you know, stories from the ways we've used them in the restaurant, successes and failures, and some of the trial and error that we went through so that somebody who is reading it would see what we have attempted and tried and maybe they might be have a background maybe they've got a, you know a chemistry degree or right. something else that they can add to that to then take it in another direction so uh, that was the thing I was kind of you know some people like oh are you are you happy to have that much intellectual property in the book like that's a lot of stuff that you guys put into like learning these things and figuring out what you figured out. And I was like, no, I kind of want to put it out there because then if somebody else knows something more than me about the chemical makeup of some of these plants, they might be able to take it a step further. And that's that would be quite cool. That's incredibly generous. That, oh, well. That's a, yeah. It's, it's how we roll. <laughs> <laughs> there's, um, I think in the book it says there's 190 edible plants in the New Zealand bush. Um, which ones have you not tried? Which ones have I not tried? And I oh. think one of them is maybe Nico. Oh, I know. I um, I would love to, but it kills the plant. Right. So, you know, there's a reason it was called Millionaire's Cabbage, and that's because once you cut that part, the, the bulbous part off, Yes, it's delicious, but you kill the tree. So I think that's one that I'll always just admire from a distance, but I have put the word out there to those who have them in their backyard that should one day, for some reason, a storm come and it affects <laughs> that particular plant, please call me and I will eat that because it's not only what, you know, and it's, yeah, and I think throughout, uh, you know, with some of the ingredients where, you know, it will kill the plant or it might be something that you need to tread carefully with like karaka berries we've yeah. always made sure we put that in the notes like please I do not want to be responsible for people going around like, hacking um, a whole bunch of trees down or because karaka berries are extremely toxic like, yeah like the process by which someone ever worked out that they were edible I is know, phenomenal and this is another thing that you know I found myself doing a lot too um, when I was doing the research is like hearing about different processes and just kind of go, how, like, did they figure that out? Like, that yeah. you, by soaking it and repeatedly steaming something that you would eventually get the toxins For out. For like 12 days And then or who was the yeah. guinea pig? Yeah. And, <laughs> and like, what happened to the first 10 people that tried it? Like, because, and I was reading about the Kodakaverse too, it was like, oh, you know, you might not die, but you may have severe um, convulsions. I was like, oh my gosh, like, who just kept going with that, you know? Have you, would you ever put that on the restaurant menu? We um, put them in like a cracker, like so we were able to um, cook them down, dry them out, and then basically um, chop them up a lot like nuts and put them through, we just had it on a, like a snack for a while. Uh -huh. um, well, you're like holding your breath every time someone 
Yeah, oh no, I tried on myself first. Um, yeah, anytime we're a little bit nervous, it's always like, well, well you, if you've been to the restaurant, you know, it's pretty close to the hospital. So we're probably, <laughs> it's probably a good thing that we are two minutes away, you know, and we have the main route, like, for most of the ambulances. Um, so it's probably a good thing. It's, I, love, I loved um, going to hear Kai at... It wasn't exactly like going up the Whanganui River, but my Uber driver was like, are you sure? Yeah. Like, Should I leave you? Do you want me to wait? Um, <laughs> why such a low-key approach to the entrance? Um, I, I wanted to do that on purpose um, because I quite like having a bit of a mystery about the building. Um, it's not obvious that it's a restaurant, especially um, from the ground floor. All you see is the brick kilns that uh, in the building that have been there since the 1800s from back when Mount Cook was just basically one big brickworks for the city. Um, and upstairs is the dining room um, and you can't even see in through the windows because uh, it's this interesting sort of um, glass that the previous owner of the building used. And there's just one sign that says here, Kai, and it lights up when we're open and then it's off when we're closed and that's about it. And I, I quite enjoy having that sort of mystery to things um, and just letting people just kind of go along for the ride. Yeah, as a diner, you sort of feel like you've been let in on this secret. Yeah. Um, and actually, now we can learn much more about your secrets through the book, which is, which is great. Um, your book will send some of us into the bush, I'm sure. What's the thing that we uh, most need to understand or the question that you get asked the most about um, foraging? I think, I think the, I'll just, yeah, the one thing that we need to understand is just not to take more than we need. Um, it's just, it's just about like, if you want to go foraging, that's great but do it in a way that is not just taking from um, the earth at such a rapid rate. So uh, we kind of have a little bit of a, a guide, a very, like, a bit of a, a sentence we always use with the team, which is um, to take a third, um, leave a third for next time and a third to regenerate. So we just always kind of think about it like that. And when we're, like, the team and I might be out foraging we'll be like, is this enough? And we're like, yes, and then we're like, okay, we'll leave this and we're not gonna come back to the spot for a while to just, yeah, like we kind of, that's how we sort of, you just right. just don't go and just take. So rule of thirds, that's really nice. Is there something that you're foraging right now? What's, what's around in autumn? Right now? Um, well, karamu berries have sort of just started to finish, so we've been sort of stocking up on those um, for the next menu. And same with like Kwatamiko flowers, we were, we've been take, well, we've been foraging a lot of those around different areas around Wellington and drying them because mm -hmm. they make a really great garnish. Um, so we plan to use those through uh, winter. Um, yeah, funnily enough, we're, we're starting to do, working on some new things with Mamaku at the moment, so we're just kind of getting a bit, bits and pieces of that and going through a lot of manono bark at the moment actually because oh, we're working right. on a dessert using that. Yeah. So um, yeah, we've been trying to get a lot of it and dehydrate it before winter really starts and then it's going to be not so, not so fun to go out and get that. Because so. <laughs> we totally romanticise foraging, right? But it is actually like you're outside, it's hard work, it's... There's moments where it's, um, it's really fun and you kind of go, oh, this is great, you know, I love my job, this is awesome, and then there's other times where you're just like covered in dirt and you're so tired and you also, your phone's going off and the team are like, oh, yeah, like, can you, on your way back, can you do this and that, you know, you know and, that, and you're just like, oh, why are we do this? Why can't we just be... <laughs> Why can't we just order this from Mo Wilson's, you know, and get it dropped off in a truck? <laughs> you know, like it's it's a it's a funny thing. I think we enjoy it more than we don't, but yeah, it's definitely it's so much hard work, um, and you've got to be well prepared. Like I drive a Nissan Navara that has all sorts of stuff 
at the ready, so in case we are going to go, we can go. But, Do um, you literally pull over on the side of the road sometimes? Oh, no. no. No, I've definitely got my spots, but yeah, I definitely have certain clothing that is the foraging clothing, because I was just going and like just ruining too many pairs of shoes and <laughs> all sorts, and yeah. Does the New Zealand bush make you work quite hard to make things palatable? Because a lot of our stuff, we, we don't have a lot of natural sweetness. No, we don't. Um, I, I don't think it makes us work that hard. Hmm. I think it's, I mean, cooking, figuring out how to make anything work in the kitchen always requires a bit of skill and technique, so I don't think it makes us work that hard. Do you think coming from... I'm thinking about your very early training was that sort of quite innovative and um, has, has that, it's almost like you've sort of combined two worlds, your absolute grassroots and then this elevated. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's interesting, I was talking to Jane Usher about this because <laughs> she, she was also a finalist in the same category um, and Weirdly, um, I, she worked on Martin Bosley's book years ago, mm. and she was actually probably the first person I'd ever done food shoots with. Um, so that was kind of interesting to be on a stage with her years later with the, yeah. with the book. Kind of like, I actually learned a lot from you um, in my early 20s doing Martin's book about how to photograph food and be organised and and design and stuff like that. And we were talking about um, Martin and his restaurant and how uh, ahead of its time it was yeah. and how fortunate it was to be working there at such a young age to see that level of innovation. And he was doing that. I mean, I mean his restaurant was kind of... it was a New Zealand seafood restaurant. So it's kind of like there was this early, like, not at the level of Hairkai, like, in depth of what we've gone into, but those, like, kind of ideas were loosely there, and his was about using sustainable seafood and local ingredients, not necessarily indigenous ingredients, but that idea of cooking locally. Yeah. Um, and doing it in a way, and showcasing the ingredients in a way where he's dehydrated it, cooked it sous vide, turned it inside out, upside down, you know, and turned savoury things into ice creams and all sorts of stuff. And I think it was almost like that early on was kind of left a bit of a blueprint. I, I feel like that when I look at things like muscle ice cream in, in the book mm. or, or the, the idea of sort of um, powdering things to, to add, making um, star anise work with Kina. Um, Monique told me that the new menu that she's working on is about two weeks away and I wanted to find out um, how do we get a booking? Because what is it, like <laughs> three months to get a booking now? It's about four. <laughs> four. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know, I, I actually, oh, thank you. yeah, um, chase down the street sometimes. <laughs> and trying to, it's true, I do, and you know, and like, so it's kind of funny, um, I'm always like, I feel sorry for my restaurant manager and also Katie, who's the general manager, because they are like the bodyguards <laughs> of the reservations. Um, basically, the best way to do it and I make no guarantees, I have to say this now, is if you sign up for the newsletter, we send out the newsletter and let people know when the next round of bookings are open, and that's usually the more likely way to get a reservation. Um, I don't think it started flashing at us yet. They've given me a note to read. Oh, okay. I'm going to. I'm going to ask you one last question. How do we be perfect to diners? It's a great question. Um, how do we perfect diners? 
You know what? I'll say this. Hospitality is a really hard job. And sometimes, like even last night, I was watching my team out on the floor um, with, the, with our guests, and I was thinking, you know, people don't understand how much energy goes into it and how much energy they give to each table and they're really genuine about it. I think to be a perfect diner, just be polite. And honestly, <laughs> just like, especially when it comes to front of house and kitchen, but, you know, they just, yeah, give them a compliment. That would actually, that actually goes a long way at the end of a long working week. It's like, there's no magic trick. It's just being polite and... Yeah, which is what we can do right now. I'm about to uh, just read the bit about the book signing note. So Monique is going to be signing at the festival information desk at the opposite end of the lobby from the bookshop. Um, and then after purchasing your copy of Heikai, walk around the back of the Neil Gaiman queue until you find the gap <laughs> and look for the staff who will help you. Wave furiously, hold the book um, and you'll find yourself in the right place. The last thing I have to do is an incredibly easy job, that's to thank Monique for everything that she has put on our tables, on our plates, in our minds today. Thank you for giving up your day off. Um, thank you all for coming and being such a welcoming and warm audience. Noa reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Tanakoe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.